Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Madcap. I'm David Ross. And I'm Daniel Bloom. Ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to listen to is an experiment in sound. The world breaks everyone. And afterward, many are strong in the broken places. But those that will not break, it kills. It kills the very good, and the very gentle, and the very brave, impartially. If you are none of these, you can be sure it will kill you too. But there will be no special hurry. Ernest Hemingway, 1929, from a farewell to arms. Author of The Sun Also Rises, The Old Man in the Sea, and For Whom the Bell Tolls, Ernest Hemingway is considered one of the greatest ever American writers. This Nobel laureate was known for his swashbuckling lifestyle, replete with bullfighting, big game hunting, and lots and lots of booze. From the outside, Hemingway seemed to be a chuckling renegade, traversing the globe without a care in the world. But in reality, his inner life was fraught with pain and depression until he took his own life in 1961. Hemingway family has withstood no less than seven suicides. And a new film, titled Running From Crazy, documents the struggle of his granddaughters. Visual artist Muffet, the late Margot, and Oscar-nominated actress Marielle, all born to Hemingway's eldest son, Jack. A complex and emotional story like this one requires an expert hand. And in the documentary world, it gets no better than today's esteemed guest, two-time Academy Award winner, Barbara Koppel. Here, she talks about the origin of her new film, Running From Crazy. I got a call from a woman named Lisa Esprama, who was, at that time, a producer at the OWN Network, and her best friend, is Mariel Hemingway. And she asked me if I would be interested in doing a film about Mariel. And it only took me 10 seconds to say, are you kidding? I would love to. My grandfather, Ernest, he was such a heavy liver, <laughs> you know, like right. he lived big, he lived hard. I think right. he liked life a lot. Um, but I think there was tremendous dark places that he would go. And I don't think he knew how to handle that. So he used alcohol and hard living to overcome that. I want to change the dynamic and I want to change the viewpoint that it's not a family of tragedies, it's actually a family of complete and total like embrace of joy. That's what I want at least to be able to give my daughters. So they don't have to carry the burden of thinking, oh, 
because there's mental illness in my family, I'm going to go crazy. Then Lisa called Marielle, and Marielle said, no, I don't want to do a film about my family. We're crazy. And Lisa said, well, that's exactly why you should be doing it. And she said, what if I could get Barbara Koppel to do it? And for some crazy reason, she knew who I was. And she said, if you could get Barbara Koppel to do it, I will do it. And she said, well, I got Barbara Koppel to do it. So, Now, were you an avid reader of her grandfather? Well, I've read her grandfather, but what really intrigued me as I was thinking about it was how much do we really know about the Hemingway family? I mean, we know the books, we know the films, um, we know what's in the press, but do we really know who they are and what they care about? And that's what intrigued me more than anything, that I was going to be able, if it was good with Mary Ellen, she wanted to do it, to really do a no-holes-barred conversation and film about her family as she saw it, as she experienced it. So as a researcher, where'd you start? Just through conversations with her or? Well, I met with her um, in New York and I had breakfast with Marielle and Langley, one of her daughters, and Dree Hemingway, the other daughter. And Marielle and I just sat and talked and talked and we got very close. And I knew that it would be something that she was digging as hard as I might dig to get to the root of who she was, who she is, and where she's going in her life, and really wanted to leave no stone unturned with her family. How did her family respond to the film? Uh, Dree has not seen the film yet. Langley saw the film and went to Sundance with it, with us, when it premiered at Sundance. And I showed Marielle the film at, when it was at Fine Cut. And I used to call her on the phone, you know, in between filming her. And I would say things to her like, okay, it's five and a half hours long. And I expected her to say things like, oh, wow, really? You have all that good stuff? What is it? Tell me about it. What are you going to put in? What are you going to take out? she wouldn't she just said okay well I'm going for a hike <laughs> I said okay so I sort of knew I was on my own and when I showed it to her for the first time the fine cut at the very beginning she got very emotional and she started to cry and then suddenly she saw the footage of Margot and she saw the footage of her parents and her eyes open wide. She sat on the edge of the chair because she never knew that all this footage existed. And it was the first time that she had ever seen any of it. Yeah, I was playing with my blocks and he'd come in and say, I do, do you have time for an ice cream? And I thought he was the most wonderful man in the whole world. <laughs> he was great. I never heard that one. Still is. I didn't know Daddy used to take me for ice cream. I'm so jealous. No, he's so sweet. Call him, on, call him on it. It was God. Jack's little elf. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you came along. Margot had been trying to do a documentary on the family too, right? Yeah, Margot did a 
documentary called Winner Take Nothing. Uh, unfortunately, she never saw it. And unfortunately, it didn't show to very many people. But we were able to also find 43 hours of outtakes that nobody else has ever seen before, which is a treasure. So Marielle saw this material and was just absolutely mesmerized with it because she had told me stories of, okay, there's going to be yellow walls in the kitchen and Robin's egg blue in the kitchen and my mother always sits near the sink with her feet over the sink and they have something called wine time and she just told me story after story about her family and after she would do it I would race back to New York and um, look to see if we had that material and we did and I didn't tell her so for her it was amazing because it meant it just wasn't memory it was something that was real that she experienced and also too it would be the first time that her daughters would be able to see the family to see her father fly fishing or hunting or the family together because they you know Drew was five months old when when her father died and died way before one of the things that's great about this project that, that you're doing you'll find out a lot not just about grandpapa but you'll find out a you know, a lot of things about your father and your mother and, uh, and about yourself. And well, well I, it's all over. I have to tell you that one of the reasons that this whole thing has been dreamed up is to, um, to, to learn about Grandpapa and to be closer to you and to the family also. Were her daughters pretty much shielded from a lot of the family history? Everybody was shielded from the family history. Is that good or bad? It's bad. I mean, who am I to say that? But it went from generation to generation where you would not know anything about your history and your past. Everybody knew that Ernest was talented. He was one of the best writers of the first half of the 20th century. He was sort of a manly man and he would go hunting and fishing and be a war reporter and loved ladies and you know a man of great challenge and adventure but the thing that he couldn't deal with were his demons and that sort of did him in and the Hemingway family were wasps they kept everything to themselves and they didn't talk about it. Um, Langley didn't know anything about her grandfather. Dreen never even knew about her mother and her aunt until she started modeling. I really haven't told you that much about the family history and all the suicide stuff because I don't think that I ever wanted you to feel burdened by it because I think that, you know, most of the time I felt so so afraid of it myself that I didn't want you guys to have really have that be a part of your life. I think it's important to know my family history. I mean, it, it, I got to tell you, when you were working so hard and you were so scared and so depressed, it didn't it scared me. 
always stuck in it. I think you've always known a little bit about being sad. And I've always known that, and I never really knew how to help. Maybe this helps. Marielle never talked about her family to anyone. And so this is really a first time. That must affect personal relationships when you can't even divulge information like that with people you're close with. I think it's much easier for people and families, particularly this family that's so iconic, to think about the positives rather than going into the negatives. All of us have a tough time going into the negatives. I mean, this story is not only her story, it's many stories. I mean, the World Health Organization said that one in four people will have mental illness, and there's 450,000 people globally who are suffering, and maybe two-thirds of them are not getting help, going somewhere that can really help them. So that's shocking. That's astronomical. Do you consider it an act of bravery to put one's own personal story out there for the world to see? Yeah, I think that Mariel was exceedingly brave and open. But I think that this has been her, this is her mission in life to really work on suicide prevention, to really think about hope and transformation and the future of her girls. Can you really even work on suicide prevention? Yeah, you can. Um, there's organizations that that's what they do. They work on suicide prevention. If you're not feeling well and you're having suicidal thoughts, these are organizations that will put you in touch with support groups in your area and help you to work through it. Why is mental health, mental illness, such a difficult thing to talk about? Well, it's a stigma to talk about it. I mean, just like AIDS was a stigma or breast cancer is a stigma or rape is a stigma. And the great importance of doing this is to break through that stigma and bring these issues to light and know that it's okay, that very creative, intelligent, and complex people also suffer mental illness and that you can't solve it alone. You have to be able to talk to other people about it and have other people have your back because you're just not going to win by yourself. Knowing that there's so much suicide and so much mental illness in my family, I've always kind of been running from crazy, <laughs> you know, like worried that one day I'd wake up and be in the same position. And I've suffered from depression before, and, and so I know... And I've had suicidal thoughts, and um, the more I speak about it, I think, you know, it obviously helps me personally tremendously. When you're dealing with subject matter that is, is very difficult, as a filmmaker, how do you do it delicately? Talking to people and letting them talk about the things that they think are important are things that needs, are pieces that need to be encouraged. Uh, just because something's painful or difficult doesn't mean, you know, you as a filmmaker or you as a human being stop if one of your good friends 
calls you and tells you about some really heavy stuff, you're going to be there for him or her because that's the nature of who we are as people. They wouldn't be telling you if they didn't trust you. They wouldn't be telling you if they, for whatever reason it is, they didn't want to get it out. You just have to trust that they're going in a direction that they want to go in. Would you allow yourself to be documented? I feel like I give back to the people that I'm talking to. If people want to know anything about me and I'm game for that, I'll tell them. So will you also tell our listeners some of the resources that exist for, for suicide prevention and all this stuff? I mean, I know some, but I don't know them all. I'm about to jump into that. Okay. The American Foundation um, for Suicide Prevention, and they do an out-of-darkness walk every year for people to celebrate the lives of people who have taken their lives. Wow. God bless you all for being here. This is not an easy thing to talk about, but I truly believe it's important that you keep speaking out about mental illness because I want people to know those that lost their lives were good people who were in deep, deep pain. McLean Psychiatric in Boston. I mean, there's Namby. There's so many of them. What's next for Barbara Koppel? What's, uh... I want to get this film out as much as I possibly can uh, to broad audiences community groups, grassroots groups, colleges and universities partner with different suicide prevention groups and mental health groups. I feel like colleges and universities is huge because I feel like college is, is ripe for mental illness, that period of time. Oh, it, it is so much. <laughs> we all went to college. It's very interesting. Right. And some of us still think we are. <laughs> and then, and I'm doing, you know, a few other films. Uh, we're doing a film on The Nation magazine, which is going to be 150 years old soon. And they've asked us to do a little piece for them. We're doing a film on the American dream. We're doing a film on the Delta Blues. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting film and hopefully two fiction films. Look forward to that. You know, as human beings, we want to be perfect, and perfection is such a horrible thing because it doesn't exist. Perfection is in the chaos. Perfection is, is in the journey. It really shouldn't be about how perfect everything is, but really more about how imperfect it is. You're listening to Madcap, and we're speaking with Barbara Koppel, director of Running From Crazy, out now in select theaters. We spoke with Koppel while driving through the beautiful city of Washington, D.C., during the annual AFI Docs Festival. This trailblazing director is one of the foremost documentarians in the medium of film. Courage is the common thread that binds all of Koppel's work. In the Oscar-winning American Dream, she told the story of striking workers in a Hormel meatpacking plant. 
and her 2006 film Shut Up and Sing featured the Dixie Chicks, who spoke out in opposition to the Iraq War, inducing a severe backlash from the country music establishment. Barbara Koppel's first Academy Award came in 1976 for Harlan County, USA, a riveting account of the fight to unionize coal mines in Kentucky. They take your very life blood, they take our children's lives, take fathers away from children and husbands away from wives. Oh, minor, won't you organize wherever you may be? And make this a land of freedom for workers like you and me. I was doing one of my first films, Harlan County, and I would find the most astounding material on coal miners and just beautiful stuff, beautiful stuff that nobody had ever seen before. And to me, that's thrilling. So Harlan County, which you won an Academy Award for, what compelled you to do that? documentary? Uh, I was very young and I had been doing sound and editing on other people's films and I had read about Jock Blonsky who was running for the head of the United Mine Workers. Um, his wife and daughter were being killed simply for running against W.A. Tony Boyle, who was then the president of the United Mine Workers of America. And I wanted to go out there and see if the underdog would win and what would happen. But I tell you, we are in Harlan County. All of our life, we've been kicked around. We've been put in jail. We've been shot at. We've had dynamite thrown at us. And then you don't want us to have nothing. Well, I tell you, Mr. Horn, I'm going to be standing right there on that picket line looking at you just as long as it takes. Thank you. Do you maintain contact with a lot of the subjects of your films? Yes, I do, whenever I can. Um, Hazel used to sing it every time I showed Harlan County. She would either be the surprise guest or I would know she was coming and be very excited about it. And after doing that film people would call me up if somebody died they want me to come and do a eulogy and things like that wow. so yes where did you premiere that film it premiered at lincoln center okay uh, the new york film festival how was that night uh well the film was ready three days before it had to show so i was did you think you were going to make that deadline of course and so I just picked up the 16 millimeter print and thought, I have spent the last four years of my life for this and brought it over there and was really excited. But getting into the New York Film Festival was much harder. But the, the women came and the whole time the film played, I just looked at their faces because if... They felt that I had exploited them or hurt them or I would have just gone under my chair. So I wanted to see if it was cool and it had never been shown before. And we uh, Xeroxed a thousand song sheets for the last song and Hazel Dickens came on the stage at the end and everybody sang the last song of the film together, the audience included. Well, power Keep it going, going. 
and one of the characters, this character named Lois Scott, who used to take her gun, <laughs> carry her gun in her bra, was the amazing woman and she had just been made head of the Black Lung Association so she started soliciting money on the stage of the New York Film Festival and people were throwing five and ten and twenty dollar bills and I was on the side giggling and she just said Barbara you stop that laughing and you pick up this money girl don't you know we need it when you believe in something strong enough that you're ready to die for it that's when you get it because that's what happened to Lawrence Jones. He believed in it so strong, and he was ready to die for it, and he did. But it could have been me. It could have been anybody that was out there on the picket line. I feel like that this is just a little pebble on the beach because we've got a lot of organizing to do in Harlan County because Harlan County will be UMWA Colt. We also showed Harlan County back in the coal fields. That was the second screening. And people came from all over to see it. There was a guy who was dying from black lung, which is a disease caused by the inhalation of coal dust. And they wheeled him in on his um, hospital bed. And the Ku Klux Klan had made their presence known outside of the screening. But we kept going on with it anyway and people were watching it and they yelled at the scabs and people who weren't in it enough said why wasn't I in it enough and it was just a wonderful screening it was I was very proud who are you working with honey what who do United you work with Press. will you show me your press card show me your press card Okay. What's your name, sir? My name is Basil Collins. Do you work here? Yes, ma'am. What's your position here? My informant. How do you feel about the people picketing out here? Well, I have no comment on that. And you, sir? Same thing. Where's this press card you was going to show me? Can I see your identification? Ma'am? May I see your identification? Yes, ma'am. If I had him, I'll swear I've lost it. All I can do is just say Oh, I think I might have misplaced mine, too. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. The film, as you know, won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature, which was given to me by this extraordinary woman named Lillian Hellman, who had been blacklisted. And not only that... When she got up there, she got a standing ovation from the whole Academy audience. And so she gave me, and I had read almost all of her books, Julia and Scandal Time, and, you know, she was just an amazing woman. And I was petrified, of course, and all the documentarians sat together at the Academy Awards, and we held hands, and... Mm. As my film was called, I felt these hands on either side of me pushing me up into the room, and I could feel my little heart beating all over the room. And it was one of the most amazing, thrilling moments of my life that my peers and others thought that this was a good enough film to be able to win an Academy Award. And the winner is... Holland County, USA, Barbara Coppola. I, too.
too can't think of a greater honor than to be given this award by Lillian Hellman. Many people worked on this film, donating their time and energy, and without it, it could never have been made. But I accept this award on the behalf of the miners of Harlan County, who took us into their homes, trusted us, and shared their love with us. And it is their commitment and loyalty which is honored here tonight. Thank you very much. The main thing is, is that the first call that I made after was to the people of Harlan County. And they were screaming and yelling and they said they were driving their cars all over screaming, we won, we won, and beeping their horns. And Harlan County had never seen anything like it. What can female voices and storytellers uniquely bring to the documentary form? Well, I don't know if I categorize it as female voices. I mean, I think it's more individual voices. What I think many people try to do is to tell very thoughtful, intimate stories and allow people to dig deep and to get as close as possible to the subjects and not interfere too much with what's happening so that people can bloom and people can uh, feel as if it's their story and not to have an agenda before you go into making a film uh, because you want the film to be what it is. You want it to go along a certain path and be fast enough to go with it. What are you watching currently on TV, Guilty Pleasures, everything? I'm not currently watching um, too many things on TV, but I used to love uh, Sex in the City. I just thought it was so much fun. I get home, put it on, and it would just take me away from everything. Which one of the four was your favorite? Carrie, Miranda, Charlotte, or Samantha? Oh, good. I'm proud of you. Yeah, I yeah. like them all. Yeah. I love to hear all of their stories, like them all. on and did films for Oz. Which I adored. And Homicide, Life on the Streets. So, you know, a lot. You won awards for those for the work you did with Homicide and Oz, correct? I did for Oz from the Directors Guild. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I really like that series. My last question is favorite childhood film? Peter Pan. <laughs> Do you have a favorite scene? Uh, I think when 
he comes into the nursery and he teaches everybody to fly and to be free. I like that. Say, that's it. You think of a wonderful thought. Any happy little thoughts? Uh-huh. Like toys at Christmas, sleigh bells, snow? Yep. Watch me now. Here I go. It's easier than pie. He can fly. He can fly. He flew. Well, Miss Barbara Koppel, we thank you for riding through the city with us, mic'd up, and learning about your career, running from crazy, and what's next for you in, in life. It's been, a, it's been a joy for us. And I thank you for your time and would love to hear this and also see the things that you write and the music that you put on and would like to stay in touch. Thank you so much. It's been a you. pleasure. Thank Great. you. Thanks. Now, think of the happiest things. It's the same as having wings. Let's all try it just once more. Look, we're rising off the floor. Jim and me. Oh, my. We can fly. You can fly. We can fly. Come on, everybody. Here we go. Up to Neverland. Barbara Koppel is an Oscar-winning filmmaker whose new documentary is titled Running From Crazy. It's out now in select theaters and airs on Oprah Winfrey's own network in 2014. For more information on the film, visit oprah.com slash runningfromcrazy or facebook.com slash runningfromcrazy. You can also find links to these websites and additional information about suicide prevention at madcapdc.org. Special thanks to Kelly from Cabin Creek Films, the Oprah Winfrey Network, and everyone at AFI Docs, especially our good friend, Lauren Selman. When there's a smile in your heart, there's no better time to start. Think of all the joy you'll find when you leave the world behind and bid your cares goodbye. Madcap is produced by Dan Bloom, David Ross, and Afim Shapiro. MadcapDC.org, on Facebook and Twitter, at MadcapDC.